from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am evil. Not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Janice, Thomas, Pahoten, Sue, Doc, Shannon, Walter, Jennifer, Elena, Elise, Ariel, Chantel, Stacy, Jessica, my dear two Emmas, Whitney, Rachel, Alethea, Catherine, Linda, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, David, Trudy, and John. Thank you guys so, so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and while we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. Today's podcast will be on Randy Kraft. Now, Randy Stephen Kraft was born on March 19, 1945, in Long Beach, California. So, as we always do, let's get into some history for that time. 1945 is the year that, with World War II coming to a close, U.S. troops liberated the Nazi concentration camp Buchenwald, which ties in with the podcast I did about Ilse Koch. Dachau was also liberated this year, and knowing his era was over, Adolf Hitler moved into his underground bunker, the so-called Fuhrer bunker. He and his wife, Eva, allegedly supposedly committed suicide. The Soviet Union also reached Berlin this year. Also this year, the Nuremberg war crimes trials began after the end of World War II, Charges were brought against 24 higher-ranking Nazi officials for war crimes and crimes against humanity related to World War II and the Holocaust. There were over 216 sessions of court over a 10-month span and a tribunal made up of the U.S., British, Soviet, and French representatives conducted in the trials. In the end, 12 of the defendants were sentenced to death, while others were sentenced to various lengths of prison or acquitted. The United States, fighting back for Japan attacking Pearl Harbor, its army took control of Okinawa. The United States then detonated an atomic bomb nicknamed Little Boy over Hiroshima and yet another nicknamed Fat Man over the city of Nagasaki. The devastation from this was incalculable. Japan, of course, surrendered. Fifty nations signed the United Nations Charter, creating the United Nations we know today. 
United States Navy Flight 19 disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle during December. Flight 19 was a squadron of five Avenger torpedo bombers carrying 14 men that had been on a simple training mission before running into difficulties over the Bermuda Triangle. During the mission, all of the planes reported having compass and instrument malfunctions, and although it was unclear what actually happened, it is believed that the squadron ran out of fuel and ditched their planes into rough seas. A Mariner aircraft carrying 13 men was then sent out to search for the squadron, but also disappeared mysteriously. No evidence of the planes or bodies were ever found during subsequent searches, adding to the mystery surrounding the Bermuda Triangle, which is a whole separate podcast in and of itself, but I think most of you have heard of this area. Italian partisans executed the dictator of Italy, Benito Mussolini, who had basically been in cahoots with Hitler. The capital of the Philippines, Manila, was liberated by American forces, and the capital of Burma, Mandalay, was liberated by British troops. Some other famous people born in 1945 are Goldie Hawn, Bette Midler, Mia Farrow, Steve Martin, and Rod Stewart. So, this was the global atmosphere at the time Randy was born. His parents were Harold and Opal Beale Kraft. Harold had been born on or around 1906 in the tiny town of Audubon, Iowa, nearly halfway between Omaha, Nebraska, and Des Moines, Iowa. His father had originally been from New York. Now, Opal had been born around 1911 in Springfield, Missouri. Her family had been there for a few generations. The couple and their three daughters had been living in Natrona, Wyoming, when they decided to move to Long Beach, California. Harold had moved there to work as a production operative at Douglas Aircraft Company. Four years later, Randy was born, the last of their children and the only son in his family. In 1948, they moved to Westminster, California. Now, the family lived modestly. We certainly would not describe them as upper middle class per se, and Opal actually took several jobs to help earn money along with her husband's assembly line salary. She initially found work as a seamstress in a clothing factory before later taking a job as a cook in a local school. But as hard as she worked to keep a job while also keeping up with house and home, four children, and all of the things that come with that, It was said that Opal always found time for her children. However, Harold rarely attended any social gatherings with his family and was later described as being a bit distant. Now, sources said that Randy was actually quite accident prone, even breaking his collarbone when he was just one year old. At the tender age of two, he fell down a flight of steps and was actually knocked unconscious. But Opal absolutely adored her beloved son and his three older sisters doted on him. The house they lived in was described as a small, wood-framed former Army Corps dormitory. Harold had renovated it into a three-bedroom house. Once settled, they became quite active in the local First Presbyterian Church. Opal even rose through the ranks to become the chairperson of the deacon's committee. It was noted, however, 
that he and his family fit in nicely within the ultra-conservative, extremely right-wing small local community. Once Randy started elementary school, it became rather clear, rather quickly, that he was extremely bright. His IQ would later test to be at 129, which is quite gifted. He was able to perform so well at school, he was put in accelerated classes. Randy himself described his childhood as, quote, apple pie and Chevrolet back in the 50s and 60s. He later described his early years and home life as idyllic, filled with happy memories of going bowling with his father, though this was not actually a common occurrence, but making strawberries and whipped cream with his mother, and even witnessing the pale, eerie light emanating from a distant Nevada nuclear test site explosion with his father. The family lived near Strawberry Fields in rural Orange County back then. Randy later wrote, quote, Today, when I look back, I can smell the distant, sweet odor of a damp grass fire and hear the frenetic crackle of the struggling flame and see the ribbon of white smoke curling far into the blue morning sky. And there is Dad in his old-style undershirt and baggy pants, piling more onto the fire with a pitchfork, and I'm helping him. End quote. Elementary school went by, and he went on into junior high, and again, there didn't seem to be any negative experiences noted anywhere. He found himself feeling pretty passionate about conservative politics and even organized a conservative politics club. He even dreamed of being a U.S. senator. He fondly remembers dancing with a girl for the first time when he was 13 years old. He made and retained friends easily and was considered pretty popular. He played the saxophone, he played tennis, and on up into high school, the reports are all the same. It was painfully obvious during my research that Randy was just a well-rounded, all-American, intelligent, good kid. And of course, when he began high school, his three older sisters had already graduated, gotten married, and left home. Both of his parents were busy working and doing their thing, which left him home alone, but this didn't seem to be an issue for him either. He was a confident and independent teenager who was responsible while at home. He had a car and even kept a little part-time job for money so he could spend it on whatever he wanted. What he did realize, though, was that he was gay. And after his sisters were gone and his parents not around much, he began visiting gay bars to explore that side of himself and to find the acceptance he knew he wouldn't find elsewhere. But during his school and family hours, he would occasionally date girls, though much later teachers and some of his classmates stated that they had suspected Randy was homosexual. In 1963, he graduated from high school 10th in his class out of 390 students, Pretty impressive, to say the least. And that was his childhood. It is a nice backstory, isn't it? Just pleasant as punch, as they say. There's not really anything for us to analyze here, if this nearly idyllic childhood is to be believed. And yet every single source I found didn't really deviate from this. No abuse. No neglect. 
just a kid growing up in what sounded like a middle-class, all-American family. Both parents worked, but for so many families, this is just what it had to be. A distant father, perhaps, but I found no cruelty or anything endured by Randy from his father. His mother and sisters absolutely adored him and were quite active in his life. He was highly intelligent, studious, respectful, and regarded highly by his peers. I just don't see anything here that would indicate anything in his environment as a child that would help possibly explain his later crimes. So let's get back into the story. The fall after he graduated high school, Randy enrolled at Claremont Men's College in California, aiming for a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics. Pretty soon after, he joined the Reserve Officers Training Corps, or ROTC, which is a group of college and university-based officer training programs for training commissioned officers of the United States Armed Forces. He also frequently attended demonstrations in support of the Vietnam War and was even involved in campaign rallies for a Republican presidential candidate at the time. Now, Randy would later say that he was just mirroring the political values of his parents and what he thought they would want him to do and stand for, but that these political views were not his own. He even described his second year at Claremont College as the, quote, last gasp of his conservative ideology, and he abandoned it quickly. In less than a year, he entered into his first real relationship with another young man. This is also the time he began bartending at a local cocktail lounge that catered to the gay scene, but it is known that he often traveled to Laguna Beach and Huntington Beach to hook up casually with men. It was said that he really wanted to come out to his parents, but was a little nervous about it. So he would bring his male friends over to meet his family, though apparently his parents and sisters were completely oblivious. But in 1966, the now 21-year-old Randy caught his first arrest for propositioning an undercover police officer for sex and was charged with lewd conduct. However, since he had no criminal record whatsoever, the charges were dropped. Randy changed over to his very radically left political beliefs and officially registered as a Democrat in 1967. He actually became a Democratic Party organizer, and he campaigned constantly for Robert F. Kennedy to be elected after he had received a personal letter from Kennedy thanking him for his work. And all of this, all of this, he was still taking college courses. By his senior year, it was said that, well, his heart wasn't quite into it as it had been. His grades were crap. He was now drinking, doing drugs, and regularly going to all-night poker and gambling gatherings with other students. He grew out his mustache and his hair. He began having frequent stomach aches as well as headaches that led him to being prescribed painkillers and tranquilizers, and it was said that he would wash his meds down with beer. Needless to say, he failed to graduate in June 1967, having to take his econometrics class over again, postponing his graduation by another eight months. But he did manage to finally graduate with a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics. 
Immediately after graduating, he joined the U.S. Air Force and was sent to his basic training in Texas. After, he was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California, where he was assigned to supervise the painting of test planes. But he did well and rose up to the rank of Airman First Class and was a supervisor as well as a manager. And Randy was feeling good about life, you know, and his position in the world and gathered up the courage to come out to his family as gay. Keep in mind, this was the late 1960s when it was much less acceptable to be gay. When he told them, he later said that his father flew into a rage. His mother wasn't very approving, but she was at least understanding and his sisters were accepting. But his sisters later said that sadly, after coming out to them, it seemed he distanced himself from them. Randy went on to disclose his sexual orientation to his superiors and was given a general discharge from the Air Force under medical grounds. And this actually upset Randy very much. He felt that he had been a diligent and hard worker and had made his superiors and, quite frankly, his country proud. So he spoke with a lawyer because he wanted to challenge his discharge. But the Air Force would not change the status of his discharge and so, for the immediate, he was forced to move back in with his parents, and he began bartending again. He apparently began losing weight on his, quote, diet of speed and beer, end quote, and immersed himself fully into the gay scene. Now, it would seem that those who knew him in this scene recalled that he was very much into bondage and telling his friends, quote, there's a part of me that you will never know, end quote. In March 1970, Randy came across 13-year-old Joseph Alvin Francher at Huntington Beach. Joseph told Randy that he had run away from home earlier that same day. Now, Randy had recently gotten his own apartment, and he invited the boy back to his place, telling Joseph that he could live with him and said he knew a woman that would have sex with him, of all things. So Joseph, again, being only 13 years old, agreed to go to Randy's apartment. Once there, Randy drugged the boy, beat him severely, and repeatedly sexually assaulted him. By some miracle, Joseph was able to escape the apartment once Randy had left for work. But Joseph was not okay, and as he got out into the public, someone noticed how very badly the boy looked, quite disheveled and seemed drugged. So they called for emergency services and had an ambulance come for the boy. The EMTs actually had to pump his stomach because of the amount of drugs he had ingested. Joseph spoke to the police at the hospital and told them that Randy had given him the drugs, but that he had also beaten him. What he did not disclose is the multiple sexual assaults he had endured because he felt shame and thought no one would believe him anyway. The police searched Randy's apartment as his roommate was home at that time, and the police arrived and, you know, he let them in willingly. However, Joseph said he took the drugs willingly, so no charges were filed. What officers did find, though, was 76 photos of Randy having sex with different men. So in 1971, 
Randy began driving a forklift for work in Huntington Beach. He had already enrolled at Long Beach State University and had decided to major in education. There, he met a young man by the name of Jeff Graves, who was a fellow teaching student and four years younger than Randy, and they began a relationship. And yet Randy was still feeling something stirring within and an itch that desperately needed to be scratched. His first suspected murder victim was 30-year-old Wayne Duquette, who had been a bartender at a gay club in Sunset Beach. He disappeared on September 20th and was found nearly two weeks later. His remains were so putrefied that they could not determine if he had died from any form of foul play. The actual cause of death was listed as acute alcohol poisoning due to the very high blood alcohol level. Experts believe this to be Randy's first victim. His second victim was 20-year-old Daniel Moore, who was last seen leaving his barracks at Camp Pendleton on December 24, 1972. His remains were discovered along the 405 freeway in Seal Beach two days later. His autopsy showed that he most likely had been thrown from a moving vehicle by the abrasions on his body. His wrists and ankles had been bound. Wayne had been beaten with a blunt instrument in the face. His body showed numerous bite marks. They also found a sock forcibly inserted into his um, bottom. Cause of death was strangulation with a garrote. And I have to put my disclaimer disclaimer here now because it gets pretty graphic. One of his roommates would later say that, quote, Randy used to go away for a few days come back and lock himself in his room for a couple more days. He'd go down by the Marine base. He wouldn't talk about it much, just mumbling something about going down and looking for Marines, end quote. Another acquaintance later revealed that Randy had kind of developed into what he described as, quote, a very anal retentive kind of guy, very uptight and very strict with himself, end quote. His friends noted that he had quite the volatile temper and he would, on occasion, seem to explode with rage. In February 1973, a nude John Doe was found alongside the Terminal Island Freeway in the Wilmington District of Los Angeles. The autopsy revealed that, again, he seemed to have been ejected from a moving vehicle. He had ligature marks around his neck indicating he had been strangled and again, a brown sock had been stuffed into his rectum. They guessed his age to be about 18 years old. Two months later, 17-year-old Kevin Bailey's body was found beside a road in Huntington Beach. Sources stated that he had been emasculated but I believe he had been found with bite marks on his genitalia, which had been cut from his body. He had been sodomized before his murder. One source stated that the coroner said the cause of death had either been blood loss or asphyxiation. In that same month, another unidentified male victim had been found dumped carelessly off the road in Huntington Beach. And then, as if Randy's murders weren't gruesome enough, 
He increased his level of pure sadism by dismembering this victim and scattering the pieces across two counties. He left the head in Long Beach, the torso, right leg, and both arms in San Pedro, and the left leg in Sunset Beach. There was evidence of bondage by the marks left on the remains, and it was also said the remains had been refrigerated prior to him dumping them. And also, this John Doe's hands were never found. The bodies just kept piling up. Some bodies showed signs of being bound and suspended from some sort of device prior to being murdered. More victims with socks inserted into uncomfortable places. It is believed Randy, in 1973, murdered 23-year-old art student Vincent Cruz Mestas, whose body was later found in the San Bernardino Mountains in December. They determined this by the sock placement, if you will. The victim's hands had been removed and were never found, and the remaining stumps had been covered with sandwich bags. Some device, described as the size of a pencil, had been inserted into the penis prior to death. By November of 1974, Randy had killed five more young men. One was 20-year-old Malcolm Eugene Little in June 1974, leaving his naked body propped against a tree beside Highway 86, west of the Salton Sea. Malcolm had arrived from Alabama to look for work for a week before this as a truck driver before he was murdered. His body was posed with his legs spread to proudly display his severed genitals, a tree branch rammed six inches into his rectum. On and on he killed these young men. So in early 1975, the now 30-year-old murderer abducted and killed 17-year-old high school student John Laris. He had last been seen getting on a bus in Long Beach. You see, John had been excited to try out his new roller skates he had gotten for Christmas. Some strollers found him floating in the surf off Sunset Beach the next day with a wooden surveyor's stake hammered into his rectum. John had been strangled while bound and had alcohol in his system. Only but a few days later, construction workers found a young man who had been strangled to death near a Long Beach motel just off the Pacific Coast Highway. He was barefoot, but otherwise was completely dressed, and it was actually stated that he had two pairs of pants on, one over the other. So as with William Bonin and his crimes during the similar years, as well as Randy's ever-accelerating murders, detectives from several jurisdictions came together to form a task force. It was a big gathering of various law enforcement personnel. This also included an FBI profiler from Quantico, Virginia, as well as a special investigator from the California State Attorney General's office and several forensic psychologists. They profiled the murderer as a man who, quote, desires to be masculine, but does not feel masculine, gnawing the nipples and genitals of his prey to symbolically make the victim a female, end quote. And side note, 
While I am, of course, not a professional profiler, I do consider myself highly knowledgeable about these things, and I just don't believe he was symbolically making his victims female. But again, this was just a profile at a time when they didn't know fully who they were dealing with. Another source stated that, quote, Perhaps the genitals represented a source of anger and frustration regarding his own attraction and projected this on his victims as a way of removing the source of his attraction, perhaps symbolically acting as a surrogate for counter-transference, end quote, meaning to transfer or redirect feelings and emotion. And I believe there's truth in that. So in March 1975, 19-year-old Keith had been hitchhiking and vanished. Two months later, three boys hunting starfish along the water found his severed head near a marina. But this time, there were witnesses that saw a black and white Mustang that had picked young Keith up, and eventually it was found by Keith's friends, and they called the police. The police traced the registration, finding that it belonged to Randy Kraft. They questioned him, and he said that he had, in fact, picked Keith up for a ride and that they had wandered around for a while, and he had dropped him off alive and well at an all-night cafe. Though detectives wanted to charge him with the death, the L.A. County prosecutors refused, stating there was no body or cause of death, though one would think a severed head might be a big clue. But this incident scared Randy, who was now working as a computer operator for a charter flight company at the Long Beach Airport. His migraines and stomach pains had been increasing, and now he couldn't sleep. He went to a doctor who diagnosed him as hypoglycemic, or having low blood sugar. Now, if you think this kept him from murdering more victims, you'd be wrong. More profiling indicated he was a methodical, organized lust killer of above-average intelligence who exhibited an indifference to the, quote, interests and welfare of society. They believed the murder to have had a military background because some of the victims had paper tissue residue in their noses, and we all know about the socks, And this is a known technique to keep the bodies from purging after death. Now, this I can get behind. I agree with this. On and on, he took and murdered his victims, their remains, discarded like trash along the roadside, some decapitated, their skulls found in one area, and their bodies somewhere else entirely. One was found with their genitals inserted into their rectum, Some facial features had been burned with the car's cigarette lighter, also used to burn the eyeballs. One autopsy revealed that this particular victim had been alive during nearly all of his torture. In 1976, 31-year-old Randy struck up a new romance with 19-year-old Jeff Selig, and they moved into an apartment together in Laguna Hills. Both men had considered their relationship permanent as they couldn't get married back then. And during this time, his murders sort of stopped, at least until the end of the year, when he killed a young man. Now, they never found the body, right? But it would later be revealed that Randy kept a scorecard of sorts that he listed his victims on. And this young man was on the list. 
Randy then went quiet again until April of 1978 when he kidnapped a teen, gave him Valium, then promptly slit his scrotum open and removed his testicles, then strangled him to death before leaving him on an on-ramp in Anaheim. Another victim two months later. And one must remember that, again, the police were dealing with William Bonin and another similar serial killer, Patrick Carney, at the same time. Randy killed again in July, then again in September, on and on. It went through 1979 into 1980 when he went on a business trip up into Oregon and murdered two more victims before returning to Southern California to pick up where he had left off. 1980 came and went, ushering in 1981, where one of his victims was found with 31 blunt force trauma blows to his head, which had destroyed the back of his skull. He had been sodomized, severely beaten, and kicked. It was noted that there was so much blood at the crime scene. 1981 turned into 1982, but early in the year, his relationship with Jeff had turned sour and they fought regularly. But it is noteworthy to mention that they did attend couples counseling together. Another murder in November of 1982, where the body was not found for two years. Another in December, 1982, turned into 1983. Are we getting the theme here? So it was in the wee hours of May 14, 1983, two California Highway Patrol officers observed a car driving erratically on Interstate 5 in Orange County. The vehicle performed an illegal lane change, and the officers, suspecting the motorist was driving under the influence, signaled for the vehicle to stop. The driver stopped and exited the car, discarding the contents of a beer bottle onto the pavement as he did so. One of the officers spoke to the individual who identified himself as Randy Kraft at the front of his patrol car and observed that his jeans were unbuttoned. Randy was asked to perform a field sobriety test, which he failed. He was then arrested for driving while intoxicated. The other officer approached the passenger side of the car and saw a young man slumped over with his eyes closed in the passenger seat, covered partially by a jacket. The officer attempted to wake the passenger up, but was not successful. He then realized the body temperature of the passenger was far lower than usual. He checked for a pulse and realized the passenger was dead. He could visibly see the ligature mark around the neck. He then observed the hands were bound with a shoelace. This young man was later identified as a 25-year-old Marine. So being charged with driving under the influence, he was held in custody while detectives thoroughly searched his vehicle. They found a belt that matched the bruising around the victim's neck, alcohol, tranquilizers, prescription drugs, stimulants, the passenger seat and carpet soaked with blood stains, though this last victim had no open wounds. Under the carpet, they discovered an envelope containing more than 50 photographs of young men in rather scandalous poses. Many of the photographed men appeared to be sleeping or most likely dead. 
in the trunk, they found a three-ring binder containing a handwritten list of 61 coded notions, or his scoreboard, if you will. They found possessions belonging to past victims, everything that they would need to convict him of murder. In August of 1989, he was convicted of 16 counts of murder, one count of sodomy, and one count of emasculation, though all experts agreed that there were far more victims than that. The jury gave him a verdict of guilty and the death penalty. As of 2023, it is said that he still remains on death row in San Quentin State Prison and continues to deny any responsibility for any of the homicides he was either convicted of or suspected of. The judge said in his case, quote, to have something like this take place in our society, I think I've sent eight or nine individuals to their death in my courtroom before. I can take all those aggravating circumstances in those other cases, and they don't match Mr. Kraft's record. I just can't comment. If anyone ever deserved the death penalty, he's got it coming, end quote. And I couldn't agree more. So my closing thoughts are, here we have a man born from parents that seemed to be decent people. I found no issues with them or their upbringing, no pathology, nothing. They had three daughters and Randy was the baby and the only son. While it was said that his father was more distant than his mother, he also recalls going bowling with his father and observing light activity coming from Nevada at night. Both parents worked, they went to church, his mother was a member of the PTA, and certainly his mother and sisters absolutely doted on him. He was confident, highly intelligent, caused no troubles, and was even popular with his peers. He maintained great grades. There was no mention of any bullying whatsoever. No abuse, no neglect. I cannot see anything in his childhood or environment to indicate any negative, really anything. He went to college and did very well until his senior year. He joined the Air Force and quickly moved up in the ranks and was highly regarded. He did realize he was gay during high school, but I saw no indication that this was a hugely upsetting realization for him. What I believe, and this is just me of course, that he might have been, you know, kind of the golden child, perhaps being the only son, fawned over by his sisters, adored by his mother. Perhaps he felt he could do no wrong, and that can create a lot of feelings of stress and pressure. This continued into college and the Air Force. I think the catalyst was his coming out. While his family accepted his homosexuality, though his father wasn't thrilled, I think it was that the Air Force generally discharging him under medical concerns, that was his snapping point. If I put myself into his mindset, right, I think that was immensely shameful for him. He had worked so hard and built up his reputation, and he had so much respect for it to just be taken away with a blink of an eye because he happened to be attracted to men, which we all know does not affect someone's ability within their career whatsoever. 
But what still troubles me is that this happened to a lot of men back then when it was still considered unacceptable who had worse childhoods than him and they didn't go on to mutilate, murder, and dismember anyone. I feel that he had to have some inborn genetic miswiring, if you will, but you know, who's to say? But tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram, at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. But most importantly, thank you guys so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer, and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 